I think a lot of people are chasing. It's like what they need. They need it to keep going. I don't necessarily know if I need it. It's just, I want to know that I've written a good joke and that it worked. Laughter is proof of success. And it's why like when you tell a joke for the hundredth time and it works, you're kind of like, okay, that's good. Today's guest on the Gravity Podcast is uh, Simon Fraser. Simon is a English comedian who graduated from Yale and is now living in Columbus. You might have seen his bit on uh, Columbus, which he proclaims to be the greatest city in the world. I saw that bit and just thought it was hilarious and wanted to meet Simon. Happy to have a chance to have him on the podcast. He's uh, traveling the country for comedy and in 2022 became the youngest person to win the prestigious funniest person in Cincinnati competition. He also produces don't tell comedy shows in Columbus, which have sold out for 54 shows straight since September of 2022. He's got a really interesting background and um, yeah, just an impressive young man who has found his calling and is making it work. And he's here in Columbus. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Simon as much as I did. Okay, welcome back to uh, Gravity Podcast. We're here with Simon Frazier. And Simon, we just spoke a little bit on the phone and I've been uh, following your work and just thought it'd be fun to have you on. So it's great to have an opportunity to spend some time with you. Thanks for having me. I'm pumped. I'm pumped to be here. Cool. Yeah. Good. So, um, you know, let's start at the beginning. It's kind of what we do. And uh, I'd love to hear your path to what you're up to now, but we'll kind of break it into pieces and connect dots and, you know, let people um, really get to see the full journey. Tell me a little bit about kind of the the early part of your life, where you're from, your family, kind of uh, what you were like, uh, you know, as a kid. Yeah, uh, I grew up in London, England. And I grew up there my whole life. My mom is a historian. She writes biographies. And my dad is an investment banker. Grew up very, very wealthy. Sorry, well well off and wealthy. I guess <laughs> I meant to say well off. But I grew up very, very nicely. Uh-huh. And kind of looking back on it now, no problems whatsoever. Yeah. But grew up in nice neighborhood, Notting Hill. Very nice. And... That was it. I kind of just went to school there, went to, got technically got kicked out of school when I was 10, had a few problems just behaviorally Uh growing up, went to boarding school when I was 13, ended up almost getting kicked out of there as well, (laughs) but then went to college in the States and, and now, uh, now I live in Columbus. Well, and that's actually, I think how I first stumbled upon you is that bit you did about Columbus and let's, we can, we can talk about Columbus and, you know, you being here and, and why you're here, but let's back up a little bit. I'm curious. And I love that you just kind of came right out and said, you know, that you grew up wealthy and, you know, and that was that, you know, I think sometimes people are a bit hidden with that. They maybe have some sort of you know, insecurity around being privileged or having money or growing up, even in like a having a loving, great household or having great parents. Sometimes people feel uh, a little bit, you know, hesitant to share that. And so I'm curious for you, you know, if you could just expand upon it, like what was it really like for you to grow up in that environment that seems really nice? 
you don't know that you're growing up in that environment yeah, right. because it's just all you know. Yeah. And everyone around you is also wealthy. Mm-hmm. And so in the same way, you know, like that, you know, fish are swimming around and, not, you know, that David Foster Wallace mm-hmm. story about, you know, the two fish are swimming and another fish comes by and says, how's the water? And they're like, what's water? Right. You know, that's like the same way when I, you know, you just live in this environment and you're like, people are like, how's your struggle? And you're like, what struggle? Right. You know, you don't know about it. Right. Just because it's everything. And so in many ways, you just, it's just what it is. And you're not really exposed to a different environment. Obviously you are. It's not like you're fully in a gated community, but it's just very, it's what you know. You mm. don't really realize how crazy a lifestyle it is mm-hmm. until you come to travel and visit new places, go to college, meet new people, all these different things which will open your perspective, your mind. It was so normal that you convince yourself you have struggle in your life because mm-hmm. you're like, oh, you know, I'm getting bullied and all mm-hmm. these things and obviously things that do matter. But in the grand scheme of things, when you look back on them and you see how serious you took them, mm-hmm. now you look back and you're like, that's hilarious mm-hmm. that you thought or that I thought I was having a tough child. Mm-hmm. You were almost like fabricating things that maybe, you know, could have been tough, but relatively speaking, not really. You just wanted to feel what it was like to struggle or was it for attention or tell me a little bit more about that. I don't think it was feeling, I think it was just the idea of feeling, it wasn't, I didn't think I wanted to feel, I think I was feeling it uh-huh. just because I wasn't aware of perspective. And I got know, it. Oh, no, you know, life's not fair. I didn't get this. Yeah. I didn't get this. And then you're like, well, Well, come on. Yeah. Actually, (laughs) I've got a lot. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So tell me, I'm I'm curious, you know, you said you're a bit of a troublemaker, 10 years old, kicked out of school. What was going on there? And what was it about you that was trouble? I think it was just pretty straightforward. I was a shy kid. Uh, I was kind of just like nervous. And like socially awkward growing up and all that stuff. And then I ended up, started getting bullied a little. So I started acting out mm-hmm. uh, at school. And so I ended up getting suspended four times from this very nice school. But then also you think about all these stories where people get suspended and then their life goes terribly. I just moved to another very nice school <laughs> and it ended up going fine. Yeah. So um, it was just a bit of like young adolescent acting out, yeah. prepubescent acting out. Yeah. Well, I, the reason I ask is, you know, I'm just kind of curious if there's any connection, you know, I don't know what you were doing to act out, but like you're a comedian, right? And, you know, there's got to be some sense of, I don't know, bravery. I mean, and, and I'm actually, I'm curious, we'll get to it later to talk a lot about what it's like to do what you do. I happen to to love comedy and yet, you know, and I've learned a lot about comedians and there's oftentimes a lot going on, you know? And so I'm wondering if like, you were just like a funny kid, you were like creating situations that were like not allowed in the proper school and that was the problem or if it was something else. No, I don't think I was really that funny until I was... I think I always liked humor and like would write funny stories, but in terms of like a funny person, yeah. I think at the time I was just a brat yeah. is the best way to put it. <laughs> and then as I grew up, I found like being funny. And because I was so such a loser, I was a very much a loser, mm. like not cool, had no very much like not a popular kid or mm. anything like that. And I just found like being funny is a very helpful tool to make people like you, which is different from 
I would say making friends, mm-hmm, you know, having mm-hmm. people like you is it can be a lot more surface level mm-hmm. rather than actually developing deep friendships. But that was at the time how I emerged out of this being this weird kid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Got it. And so, yeah, it's interesting, you know, you describe yourself as a loser or, you know, insecure, quiet, and, you know, going through all the suspensions, you, you go away to boarding school. What's that experience like? Does that, do you start to kind of find yourself there or is this, it doesn't really come until later? Yeah, it came over time is mm-hmm. kind of what I've come to realize with everything. Like it started out sucking. Yeah. You know, that first year was a horrible experience. Yeah. It's pretty funny being, it's a funny concept sticking 13 year old British schoolboys in the same corridor. Uh-huh. Or the same hallway yeah. as eighteen-year-old fully developed men who play professional rugby, <laughs> and will just be in their underwear, uh-huh. and you'll also be in your underwear, and it feels illegal in a lot of ways, <laughs> and it it should be, but it, it, you do for, you're forced to. It, it just took time. Yeah. It was a five. It was a five-year experience rather than like the four years in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But in the same way, it's kind of how I've come to view. You know, I kind of think like. Over time, if you it suck, everything sucks to start off. But if you push through, mm-hmm. eventually it will, the good stuff will come out of it. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I see mm-hmm. how I saw college and how I see like being here in Columbus or anything in life is just mm-hmm. like just push through and and the good stuff will come out of it. Mm-hmm. Boy, is that true? I really believe that, and I think. It's really um, way more true than people realize because, you know, you can maybe understand it in like one context that you, you know, can see how it applies. But I think it's actually true in a lot of things, almost everything, right? I mean, there's certain maybe physical limitations to being able to, uh, you know, the people say they, you know, dunk a basketball kind of thing, right? But like... You know, I've learned through learning to play guitar or work or all kinds of physical, running marathons, whatever it is. Like, I did a lot of things that I had no idea how to do when I started doing them. And by the time I was done, I was okay at it, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's, you know, really true for life in general. But it's, it's interesting to hear you say that and that, you know, you've had that experience as well. Yeah. What marathons have you run, by the way? Oh, I've run four. I ran Columbus. Actually, sorry, I've run three full marathons. I ran Columbus, uh, New York, and Washington D.C. Uh, when did I've I've done did Columbus and New York as well? When okay. did you do New York? Gosh, I don't remember. It's probably been I don't know seven eight years ago, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. I was just checking. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's a special one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I'm assuming you. Enjoyed it or hated it? You hated hated it. it. Yeah, I shouldn't assume that. Yeah, Yeah. but it was still nice to do it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What did you hate about it? It was I cramped up. I've done it two years in Uh a row now, and each time I cramped up Mm. at the same spot, Uh and you just have to push through. Yeah, but and when you do it the first time, you're like, that's rewarding. Yeah, my mind can take me that far, and then the second time, you're like, well, I knew my mind could take me that far. So now it was just painful. Yeah, yeah. And what mile did you cramp up on? Uh, 13. 13, yeah. Right, a- yeah, right before the, um, I guess it was Queensboro Bridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a long way to go yeah. after, with cramps, yeah. Have pretty much hit the wall at mile 20 in all three marathons that I've run. And uh, the last six miles is pretty 
pretty excruciating. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny that, you know, people think that if you can run 20 miles with six more, but um, that's just not the case. Mm-hmm. It's a whole different race. Yeah. That is very true. Yeah. Okay. So, um, are you, what are you finding any interest in your academics, your studies when you're in boarding school? What's going on there? Yeah. I mean, I was always an academic. I was always very, you know, good at school and all that stuff. Always good at getting grades, getting the right, getting good grades and all that stuff. Boarding school, the main thing, I just kind of like come out of my shell a bit more, I think, especially mm-hmm. going into my second or third year there, just kind of making friends and adjusting to the environment. I think it was, I had spent so much time like being, actually, that's not true. It kind of comes a little bit later, but I think just, I just made some really good friends, mm-hmm. which is something I just hadn't had in the past. And having a, just becoming comfortable and in my environment, it made me, you know, putting myself out there a lot more. And I think also just, yeah, I think, I don't know how, it just kind of naturally, when you spend more time in one place mm-hmm. and you force yourself to stay there rather than just taking the easy way out and being like, I want to move school or something like that, mm-hmm. it forces you to come to terms with it and get comfortable. And I think that's what I did. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm curious about your parents and all of this, you know, through the suspensions and going away to boarding school and, you know, you finding yourself, how are they with that? They're supportive, they're patient, they're angry. You know, what is it that, you know, how did they handle that? Yeah, my, my mom and my dad are very different people. They're almost polar opposite. My mom is very supportive uh-huh. of ever, of anything I would want to do. So yeah. oh, you want to, you want she's English and my dad's American. Uh-huh. Um, so she's like, oh, you want to move school? You know, like, oh, let's move school. And my dad is like, you do not move school. You will stay. <laughs> like, what are you like, force you to, and it's a healthy um, combination, I yeah. think. Yeah. It kind of forces you to cut, figure out what the right decision is. Mm-hmm. And so that they were supportive and they offered help as well. And I was, Went to th- I went to therapy mm-hmm. and all these things to try. They were like, our kid is super weird, so let's, <laughs> let's fix him. And so it was very helpful. Um, uh-huh. And they, they put in a lot of effort to try and make me not become a weird kid. And I think yeah. it helped a lot. You have siblings? Uh, yeah, I have a younger brother who's a year younger than me. Okay. And a half-sister on my mom's side who is 11 years older than me. Okay. And she has two kids and uh-huh. a husband. All very nice. Nice. Yeah. And um, do they live in the States or? Uh, my brother lives in New York. Uh-huh. He works in real estate. Yeah. And my sister lives in London. She is a theater director. Okay. Yeah. So what brings you to the States? Tell me kind of why you chose to come here for college. I came here for college because I didn't get into Oxford, mm-hmm. which is the poshest statement I could say. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way I applied to Oxford in England. Mm-hmm. And then I applied to Yale in America, mm-hmm. and I got into Yale, and I got into Oxford. I didn't get into Oxford, mm-hmm. and so that was a pretty easy decision for me. Sure, and I was like, "Good, yeah, I'll, I'll be attending Yale." Nice, and, and so then I just went. Yeah, yeah. And um, what did you study? I studied history. Yeah, but the way it works is you kind of can start. You study so much there. Yeah, that history was only a third of my courses. Yeah, so I studied a lot of English and uh, poli sci journalism. And then random courses all over the place, playwriting, yeah, bunch of things all over the place. Yeah. And um, tell me a little bit about kind of your college experience. What are you interested in? What kind of, you know, where are you in your development? You know, kind of how are you feeling about 
you mentioned you made some good friends. So um, it sounds like you're really coming into your own a bit. Yeah, college was very much went in and immediately it went pretty well on in terms of the social aspect. It was very easy to make friends. It was a really nice experience. The hardest part was trying to figure out what I wanted to... I think what I wanted... Not who I wanted to be, but what I just what I wanted to be. You know, mm-hmm. you go to a place like Yale, you have... There are so many extracurriculars, activities where you can, you know, be whoever you want to be. Mm-hmm. And I applied to 27 different extracurriculars <laughs> my freshman year. And I got rejected from every single one. <laughs> and I was like, oh God, maybe, uh, maybe I don't, you know, they are, everyone's got that inferiority complex about yeah. being at a place like that. They're like, I don't deserve to be here. I was yeah. like, well, I actually <laughs> don't think I deserve to be. I think I've got proof of that. <laughs> yeah. It's not just a feeling. 27 times. 27 uh, times. Uh, hearing no 27 <laughs> times kind of hardens you a bit to rejection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no different from a night out uh, in Columbus. <laughs> you know, the, but the same thing, it's, you just, I think that was kind of tough. I was like, oh, and I didn't know what what to do. And then it just ended up that sophomore year, I tried out for the stand-up group on campus. Mm. And I didn't really, I wasn't good at stand-up either. I should have been rejected for a 28th one. Mm. But I, they took pity on me. I just listed every extracurricular I'd been rejected from. <laughs> and they were like, okay, well, we can't turn them down. Now. That was your application. Yeah. And, and was it really like the 28th last thing that you wanted to do? I mean, like, why was that not higher on the list? Was it just like, I've got to find something to do and this is all that's left? Or was it actually something that you were really curious about, interested in? Yeah, I just I just bumped into a mutual friend, a friend of a friend who was like, you should try out for the stand-up group. And I had done stand-up one time that freshman summer mm-hmm. in New York. And I was like, okay, yeah, I, I think I can do this. Mm. And so I tried out and that it was just a pure pure happenstance Mm. that it ended up working out. That's funny. Well, when I was in college, I had a a guy in my fraternity who went to an open mic night and the whole frat came Mm -hmm. and he killed. I mean, we were heavily intoxicated and we thought he was just the funniest shit ever. You know, we were just having the best time thinking he killed. And then apparently he went back the next week when, without the frat and like mm-hmm. totally bombed. Yep, that's about right. <laughs> it's the same with doing, it's your performance is completely dependent on your audience. Right. And it's, I've had the exact same experience. My first time I bombed, mm-hmm. second time I bombed, third time I bombed, fourth time I was like, I should get some friends out just to like boost the confidence a little. Kill. Yeah, yeah. So, but, you know, you said you weren't very good and, you know, bomb, 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 but you stuck with this. And tell me a little bit about kind of, you know, how you see your ability to really continue to put yourself out there. I mean, that's why comedy is so fascinating. I mean, actually doing anything that you really put yourself out there requires some real courage. You know, I have been finding that with stuff like podcasts, doing solo episodes or, you know, more creative outlets. It's easy for me to sit here and ask you questions. But, you know, if if you turn the mic on me and I've got to be fully responsible for carrying the audience, you know, you start to um, really put some thought into it. You know, it can be a little uh, intimidating, scary. And comedy, I mean, man, there's probably nothing <laughs> that that's more like that, you know? But tell me a little bit about kind of your experience with it and how you found yourself 
you know, really wanting bad enough to be in the situation where you might bomb over and over again. Yeah. The, I think a lot of it is delusion. Mm. A lot of it is thinking you're way better than you are. <laughs> and when you get one laugh, uh-huh. you're like, oh, I'm Kevin Hart. Uh-huh. And <laughs> when you look back on this, when I, you know, when you look back on your sets, uh. like six or seven years later, you're like, oh God, it's crazy. You yeah. decided to, it's crazy you decided to keep going with this. Uh-huh. But it's good. You yeah. Stand up like to advance in anything. I think require, or not anything, but it, something like stand-up where it's only up to you mm-hmm. about whether you decide to keep going requires a bit of delusion. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of, you know, and almost helpful delusion. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not identical to running a marathon, I was going to say, but like when you're on that treadmill, when I start, like started running a trying to train for a marathon mm-hmm. and I like couldn't do a mile, to think you can do 26, like... It requires a bit of like, oh, I'm so much better mm-hmm. than I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm better in my head than I am mm-hmm. in reality. Mm-hmm. But then you get that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that was part of it. The main thing that appealed to me about stand-up actually was just how meritocratic it was. I think I'd grown up with a lot of things being handed to me, mm-hmm. just from education opportunities mm-hmm. to just lifestyle opportunities mm-hmm. to pretty much when you grow up with when you grow up with money and connections. Mm-hmm. You really can just have like a really easy life. Mm-hmm. And I think what I loved about stand-up was it wasn't a case of who you knew mm-hmm. or how much money you had, but just, are you funny? Like, mm-hmm. can you prove yourself? And now that I'm longer into the industry, I've realized it is a little bit about how much money you have and how many people you know. Uh-huh. But so is every industry. Sure. And I think stand-up is closer to a meritocracy than perhaps any other yeah. form. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. And it's interesting to to hear you say that, you know, now you see how it's still helpful to have connections. And, and yeah, that's probably true with everything, mm-hmm. right? I mean, who you know and how you can navigate things, you know, is, is obviously going to be helpful. But you've got to be funny, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're not funny, it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so, so how many, so, so you graduate from college and at what point do you decide that you're really going to give this a try? I was 20 years old. It was my sophomore summer. Sorry, I'd spent a bin, bunch of summers doing random internships here and there, mm-hmm. not knowing w- what I wanted to be, anything like that. And I'd done stand-up a few times. I had done a bit of journalism as well. And I was working, I'd somehow stumbled across this job working in Sri Lanka on a tea plantation Mm. as a project manager, Mm. overseeing uh, a thousand Sri Lankan farmers, which if there's any instance of unqualified nepotism, (laughs) I think it's that. I mean, I didn't speak Sri Lanka. I still don't know what language they speak in Sri Lanka. I should look it up. But I didn't know what I was doing. And it was just my second day there. And there was no Wi-Fi. There was a lizard in my bed. I was working with these drone pilots. Uh-huh. They, um, the idea was you would spray pesticides on crops using drones instead of using farmers because it prevents the farmers from being exposed to these harmful carcinogens, yeah. which is actually a pretty good idea. Still sure. in practice. But it doesn't work. It didn't work because one of the three drone pilots I was in charge of overseeing was blind. Mm. And so the drone <laughs> kept on crashing. <laughs> yes. And that would make it difficult. Yeah. yeah. And so I was just out here. I was, it was it kind of that happened. And the lizard came out of my bed. Uh-huh. And, I, the, and then I was like, can we fix the Wi Fi to fix the drones? And they were like, it will be a week. And I was like, it was so ridiculous. I was like, actually, I 
had a moment of realization. I was just like, I don't want to do this. Uh-huh. I know what I want to do. I want to do stand-up comedy and journalism. Yeah. And so I called the CEO and I said, hey, listen, mm. I'm quitting. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, have you considered performing stand-up comedy to the Sri Lankan farmers? And I said, that might be tricky <laughs> considering <laughs> I don't speak their language. <laughs> that's a tough sell. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. But so that, that's when I decided, that's when I like zeroed in on it. Yeah. And I said, this is what I'm going to do. And then from there, I went back to America, traveled, um, traveled the country on Greyhound buses, just doing open mics across the country. Mm. Again, another example of how I was just able to do that. It was just another, another example of just like how money can help you travel mm-hmm. and get better. Another example of how stand-up really isn't that much of a meritocracy. Mm-hmm. But still, I was like, this is what I'm going to try and do. And so yeah, I've been doing that for a while now. Wow. And so you go, you're going around all over the country on Greyhound buses yeah. and just finding open mics. Yeah. Pre- pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And so how many years have you been doing that? I did my first, I guess it would be six, six, years, six years ago now, mm-hmm. I believe. And I've been doing it seriously for about five, five years. And I'm curious, you know, you talked a little bit about kind of now that you've been doing it, you've seen sort of the business side of it and, you know, how to navigate that. Talk a little bit about that. Like, you know, I think people sort of glamorize or or maybe not. um, Nobody sees what happens before you get on stage Mm -hmm. um, and how that works. I mean, are you finding your way through that business? Do you have, do you get an agent? I mean, like, how do you go about building a career in comedy? It's all self-driven. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get an agent, but it, nowadays to get an agent, you need to have a following mm-hmm. and you can only build a following by creating stuff yourself. Mm-hmm. The same way with, you know, then even this podcast, mm-hmm. um, it's not like there are people backing you. It's like your own decision to mm-hmm. start this and grow it mm-hmm. and grow it from the ground up. And so, yeah, you just have to, you have to get better at stand up, And the only way to get better at stand up, you can't have people just pushing you or anything like that. You just have to get up on stage and practice and practice and practice and mm-hmm. run as many reps as possible mm-hmm. and travel and, and meet people and, mm-hmm. and just try and get better. And so that's what I've been, that's what I was doing since from around 2020 until the end of 2022, uh, just literally traveling every single week for comedy mm-hmm. and performing every single day for comedy, trying to get better. And now I still do that, but mm-hmm. I'm, having a bit of success here in Columbus now. Mm-hmm. So it's... Um, we'll talk about Columbus. I'm curious, you know, I want to hear... I want to talk about the success you're having. And, and also, I'm kind of curious about how comedy has changed, you know, with being able to put content out in so many different places. And, you know, that following and the importance of following. Mm-hmm. Um, but how did you end up in Columbus? I had just graduated college in 2020 in a pandemic. And I was... It was September and... All my friends were starting their jobs in New York on Wall Street and I didn't have anything going on. So I was like, I'm going to do a road trip across the country. I'm going to visit every London, every place named London in America because I had lost my passport. So I couldn't go back to London uh-huh. to, be with, to be with my family during the pandemic. Okay. So I was like, I'll make the best of a situation. I'll go to every London in America. And so I was going to London, Ohio, which uh-huh. is the second London. Uh-huh. Of my journey. Okay. And where was the first? The first was London, Pennsylvania, which okay. does not exist. <laughs> it's okay. Just, uh, it's just the side of a highway. <laughs> Did you um, have to get there to realize that? 
Yes. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Uh, was no, uh, there, when I looked up London, Pennsylvania, nothing showed up. Okay. But it was on Google Maps. And so I went. Got it. And it was truly just the side of the highway. Uh-huh. And, and you just kept going to the next London. There was nothing. There was nothing there. Yeah. Yeah. So I just kept on going. And that was the trend with a few of them. Uh-huh. Uh, London, London, Missouri. It, I turned up. It turned out. It had actually been recently renamed to Tokyo, Missouri. Okay. So I was like, okay, good, very foreign of you. Um, <laughs> London, Tennessee was didn't exist. It was just Del Rio, Tennessee. Okay. Uh, so it just been misnamed on Google Maps. Uh-huh. It was a lot of that. <laughs> it was a lot of... That's, that's very uh, anticlimactic. It was too. a lot of eight-hour solo road trips just uh-huh. to discover yeah. that it was all in vain. Okay. Well, I'm sure you were learning a lot on these road trips. And when you arrived in London, Ohio, first impressions, is this your first time in Ohio? It was my second or third time actually in Ohio. I've been up to Cleveland a few okay. times. Okay. Um, so you knew something more than just London, Ohio about Ohio. Yeah, yeah okay. exactly. And I was having a nice time. I just, I'd stopped by in Cleveland the day, two days before. I had gone skydiving over Canton, Ohio, which was you know, a beautiful place to skydive over. Uh-huh. You know, lots of farmland to admire. Sure, yep. And yep. then I'd been in Columbus the night before, got to London, and it was charming. You know, I kind of went in. This is another thing that I found very nice about all of this, this London trip. I kind of went in with this, you know, like, coast. I would say coastal and like, naive attitude of mm-hmm. like, small town America. Every London was like a place, like, a thousand people or smaller. Mm-hmm. And you know, all very small towns. And I'd gone on with this like big like, oh, they're idiots over there. Yeah. And then when you get there and you go to all these small places and you chat with the residents and mm-hmm. you have dinner with them and you spend time with them, you're like, you're the loveliest people I've ever met. You yeah. Care, you care about your community that you're a part of. Sure. And I think we all do. And we're all searching for community and yeah. you found yours and it just so happens your community isn't, the you know, it just so happens that America doesn't have one fixed community. Don't really know what I'm trying to, What I'm trying to say is I don't... I think just people in these small towns care about their communities. Yeah. And so I, I just kind of... I left with a much greater appreciation of small town America mm-hmm. and the people within them. And I thought a lot of them were just filled with a lot more love than the hate they're characterized as having. Mm. And yeah, I'm sorry. The day before I went to London, Ohio, I'd stopped by Columbus. And I bumped into three guys who I went to college with on the street. Hmm. And I was like, what are you guys doing here? And they were like, oh, we just moved here for quarantine. And I was like, oh, let's get a drink. Uh And so we got a drink. And I left my number for the bartender because I was like, I'll never be in Columbus again. What do I have to lose? First time I'd ever left my number for someone. (laughs) And uh, she texted back. And I was like, this place is amazing. (laughs) This is where dreams come true. So I just moved it. Okay. Yeah. And so you've been uh, calling Columbus your home now, huh? Yeah, like two and a half years or so. Yeah. And um, yeah, like I said, I saw your, your bit on Columbus and thought it was really funny having lived here most of my life, you know, and, and really understanding all of that. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit about, let's back up and talk a little bit about kind of the business and, you know, how you are actually making this work. And, and I have no idea, like, to what extent that what does that even mean and what your goals are and where you are in that part of the journey. But you're on the journey of being a professional comedian. And, you know, I'm curious just how much you have um, learned about how things have changed and how things are done. 
you know, it does seem like today every comedian has a podcast mm-hmm. or, you know, is still doing stand-up. I mean, stand-up still seems to be a thing that even the biggest comedians do. And, and maybe they do it for money. It seems like they just love it. And they also, you know, have the whole special thing, which is, you know, been around a long time, but that seems to be more and more prevalent with streaming. And anyway, the business just seems to have changed a lot. And I'm kind of curious, you know, from your standpoint, and maybe for anybody else out there, you know, listening, how you really can navigate that. How do you build a following or how do you actually find yourself moving up through the ranks as a comedian? Yeah, it's never been a better time, I think, to be a comedian because nowadays it's all about social media. It's all about Instagram reels and Mm -hmm. TikTok Mm -hmm. in terms of growing a following, those and Facebook and YouTube shorts. Mm -hmm. These are, those are like the four most helpful things that can help a comedian grow. In the past, it was always, are you out in New York? Mm -hmm. Are you out in LA? Mm -hmm. Are you getting seen by an agent who will put you on the Tonight Show? And when you get on the Tonight Show, then you can go play B rooms across, Mm -hmm. or you can play small comedy clubs across the country. Maybe you can feature for a bigger name across the country. But now, with the advent of all these streaming of Instagram and TikTok, where anyone can put anything out, and it's not, there's no gatekeeper who's saying, oh, we're just going to show this comedian to a million people, and we're not going to show this comedian. Nowadays, it's just a question of, if anything, it's even more of a meritocracy because if people like the clip and engage with it, then it's going to get pushed mm-hmm. to more and more people. And again, it's not necessarily true. Sometimes if the topic has a lot of, has a fiery content mm-hmm. and then it will have a lot of comments and then the algorithm will push it. Mm-hmm. Sure, that's an unfair way. But also your content is now being spread to so many more people than it was originally. Mm-hmm. You, you can develop a fan base just like that. And so mm-hmm. I have so many comedian friends who are blowing up, so to speak, mm-hmm. because they've, they're putting out their stuff online and people are connecting with it. And it's, it spreads far quicker than just traveling the country and having all your, having like 100 people at once mm-hmm. see your set and be like, I'm a fan. Right. Now you can get 10,000 fans overnight. Yeah. I'm curious how that changes things or if that changes things for you. I mean, do you find yourself thinking about subject matters that might be more likely to go viral? Or do you think about, you know, kind of the content differently because of the format that you're, you know, relying on getting it out there in? I think if I was super strategic, about all of it, I would be. Mm-hmm. But then I think being super strategic slightly defeats the purpose of, right. of what you're trying to do. Right. And so it's kind of, a, I think it's a balance. Mm-hmm. And so I don't necessarily want to just be like, oh, I'm going to just write jokes about gun control and abortion. Right. And then realize, and then have my comments blow up. Right. Because people are arguing and they don't focus on the joke. Right. Obviously, you want first and foremost to be funny. Yeah. That's the most important thing. And, but then you also, I've seen great comedians post hilarious clips about meaningless stuff, which Mm -hmm. is very funny and then it doesn't catch on with the algorithm. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that's just like 
the game comedians nowadays are playing, mm. which it's not necessarily, it's not the best way mm-hmm. because it doesn't always reward the best content. But if you learn to play the game and you're good at what you do, I think you'll get rewarded, which has always been the case. Mm-hmm. You have to learn to play the game of how to get on network TV, of how to get a late night set. Mm-hmm. And now you just need to learn to play the game of how to have the algorithm boost you mm-hmm. and not have everyone in the comments be like, this guy sucks. Right, right. And I'm also curious, when you think about content creation, what that's like for you from like a idea to like getting the idea down on paper to actually like refining it. Like tell me a little bit about your process to getting something to the point that you want to put it out there. Yeah. The I think the first I never think putting it out there is the most important part. I always think the most important part is yeah, I, I think also when I write jokes, and I'm sure this is true for almost all comedians, it's less about will this go viral? And more about will this make the people in this room here laugh? Mm-hmm. And that's that's the most important part because you can be because you can be hilarious online, but if people come to your show and then they see you live and they don't laugh, then that's that's terrible. That's way worse, right? Uh, like on people online, are, it in my opinion, like I don't I don't mind too much about what people online think about me, mm-hmm. but I do care about what the people in the room who I'm with, who have paid money to see me. I want to make them happy. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the stuff I write, I'm not thinking about, will it go viral? I'm just thinking about, am I writing something that's interesting, that maybe reflects a greater truth within the joke itself? Mm -hmm. Maybe if I'm writing a story, why why should I tell this story? What's, What's interesting about this story? And just trying to make it engaging for for the viewer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you find yourself like having to turn it off or like seeing humor like in everything? Like, I mean, I would imagine it's like a, you know, a fashion designer walks into a, you know, can't, can't help but to look at what everybody's wearing or, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, for me, I, you know, observe architecture, you know, it's, I'm wondering if like you're constantly like, you know, having your brain working, like that would be funny, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't think I've had a serious... I, don't, I haven't had a serious thought <laughs> maybe since I started since I started comedy. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the brain of any comedian. Yeah. When you just... When you takes over your life and you're like, oh, that's funny. And you're apologizing... When you're apologizing to someone yeah. or, like you, you, or someone's apologizing to you or something really sad has happened. It's just your yeah. instinct just to go for the comedic right. mindset. And then... Because you're just thinking of it. That's your brain. It's right. Just, funny but then it's also on the reverse i remember when i was young my dad would tell me like a story about mm-hmm. or he just he'd say like oh when things get pitched in the snl mm-hmm. um pitch room lawn michaels never laughs he just says that's funny with a straight face and moves on and i was always like how does that uh-huh. possible right, like, right how can someone not find something funny and now uh-huh. i i don't laugh at comedians right i'm like that's funny yeah but I, I don't laugh because you just see it so much. It's uh-huh. just it is your it's your reality. Yeah. Who well, who does anyone make you laugh? I mean, who do you look up to at least? A lot of pe- a lot of like silly, absurd people make me laugh uh-huh. a lot. But people I look up to are just any comics who can really capture an audience's attention and energy. Yeah. You know, people like St- obviously Steve Martin, yeah. uh, 
like 90s Chris Rock uh-huh. uh, is a big one. Oh, yeah. Um, and then even like Quiet, like Mike Babiglia. Uh-huh. I love, he's, he, you know, he can, if you can get an audience either cheering yeah. and going crazy for you every, every five seconds or an audience that's ready to like hear a pin drop mm-hmm. because they're mm-hmm. on, I think both sides are what I'm, I really like. And so trying to combine those two, mm-hmm. those two elements. And then I love the silliest comedians of all time who mm-hmm. just, there's one Norwegian comedian called Vigo Ven, who I'm sure no one listening has ever heard of. Uh-huh. But he has a hilarious five-minute tape on YouTube uh-huh. and it's well worth watching. Yeah. yeah. All right, cool. I'll check it out. I'm just thinking about the pandemic and we would go to see Chappelle mm-hmm. in Yellow Springs. And uh, a few things I was thinking about while we were talking from that experience. One was just how like it was like a public service you know, to make people laugh, especially when, you know, people need to laugh. And, you know, I think we always need to laugh. It's very healing to laugh. It's very cathartic. It's very energizing, right? It's just, it's something about the energy of laughing is so healing and, and uplifting. And so, you know, you get to do that for people. That's got to be a good feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's the best, it's the best job in the world. Not yeah. only a you getting something out of it by having people laugh and, you know, you're feeling you've accomplished something, but that it's a positive sum relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's getting something out of it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's great. I mean, it's the, it's the same with any, it's, you know, with almost all the stuff you do, it's not just about you, but it's about having every, it's about making everyone, everyone's lives better. Mm-hmm. And it's also, yeah, it's another reason. Well, it's actually the main reason I know I said I moved to Columbus just because I met those friends and, you know, that girl gave me her number. Mm-hmm. But the reason I actually came out was because I was like, I did some comedy shows in some apartments at the time and everyone was like, we'd love to have some comedy mm-hmm. in like downtown Columbus. Like mm-hmm. we'd love to have a comedy club in Columbus. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, listen, I don't have anything going on, but it would be great to, it's always nice to not give something back, but just to create something of positive value. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I'm going to move to Columbus mm-hmm. and try and get comedy going mm-hmm. in downtown, in the short north mm-hmm. and everywhere around Columbus where people can feel excited about like, even to small part, a little bit extra excited about living in Columbus, mm-hmm. that there's one extra thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so now like, that's along with the performing, the producing of comedy shows mm-hmm. is equally as rewarding because you're putting on these good shows and you'll get and you're getting a lot out of it Mm -hmm. but then the best part is when other people get something out of it it's like that's like the best that's the that makes whatever you're doing worthwhile right yeah that's great i'm excited to hear more about that maybe we'll talk off air about kind of where you're at with you know that piece the piece of making columbus a better city because I do really think that those are the kinds of things that are incredibly valuable to a city like Columbus. I've been kind of pounding this drum from a variety of angles that the importance of culture and really the arts mm-hmm. um, and entertainment, you know, music, comedy, public art, um, having just like cool, fun shit to do is like economic development, Mm -hmm. right? We are not going to get people to move here. We are not going to attract venture capital. We're not going to do a lot of things if people don't love the offerings here. Mm -hmm. And 
So I'd love to talk to you more about, you know, where you're at with that and how maybe we can, um, you know, collaborate there. Going back to just the, the kind of act of being a comedian, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, curious. The other thing that I was really struck by when I would go to Yellow Springs is Chappelle would fly in all these guys. You know, we saw Louis C.K. one night. We saw Chris Rock. We'd see, you know, all kinds of up and coming comedians. And there was one night Chris Rock was there. And it was like super cool. I've seen Chris Rock. I've seen 90s Chris Rock. I've seen him a bunch. But, you know, now you're in this, this you know, cornfield with a couple hundred people during the pandemic and Chris Rock is there and you're 10 feet away. And he comes out with a piece of paper and he's like clearly working on new mm-hmm. material, you know, and, and he's bombing. He yeah. actually was bombing, yeah. you know, which was like, it was kind of a bummer, you know, but then I'm like, this is actually really cool because I'm seeing one of the greats work on his craft. And so I'm curious, you know, to hear a little bit about what that's like to work on it. Do you like dedicate time to sit down and write jokes and then try them out on people on stage? You know, where do you go? Do you, you know, you might not have the luxury of being Chris Rock where you can go, you know, walk on any stage any night and bomb and you're still going to get your Netflix special, right? So I'm just kind of curious for you, the process of, you know, kind of putting material together and and then working it to the point that you're satisfied with it. Yeah, it's literally any, you know, like I said, you're always thinking funny. You're always trying to think, is this funny? Is that funny? Maybe you have a thought, you write it down in your notes app or on your notepad. And then you'll just come back to it the next day and be like, what can I get? What can I get out of this? When you learn how to write a joke, you realize it's just set up. It's just set up punchline mm-hmm. or premise set up punchline. Mm-hmm. And so you just need to figure out those three elements. And it takes time because you can have the formula down, but then the content of the joke is not necessarily the funniest. Mm-hmm. But it's just that. It's just writing and writing and writing. And when you get to learn your voice and who you are as a comedian, it becomes easier because then you can write in your voice. It's almost like you're parodying yourself in terms of you think, how would, you know, if I were to parody Chris Rock, for example, which I don't think I would parody him word for word, but you kind of, you have to think about that for yourself as well. Like how would, how would Simon write this joke? Mm -hmm. And then you write it out and you're like, okay, this is consistent with my voice. It has the joke. It has the premise. It has the setup. It has the punchline. Then you take it on stage and you see how it goes. And what's interesting about Chris Rock because he does it all the time. You know, people, everyone's like, welcome to the stage, Chris Rock. And mm-hmm. then like, oh my God, it's Chris Rock. Mm-hmm. And then he comes on stage and he bombs. And he does that not because he's, you know, he's just trying to give the audience a bad time. He's trying to, number one, work out his material and also bring down the energy so much because he is such a known for being such a high energy comedian mm-hmm. and f- for being such a famous comedian. He just wants to tell those jokes and see, gauge the audience's reaction mm-hmm. while still removing the element of Chris of him being Chris Rock mm-hmm. from the room. Mm-hmm. So he just wants to see if the jokes stand up on them by themselves rather than just being Chris Rock, which I guess is a sign. But it's just it's an interesting way of how he does it. Do you ever write with other people? Uh, I don't that much, mm-hmm. um, but I should. It's always it's writing with other people is so helpful. Mm-hmm. You're just able to spin and like riff and throw ideas against each other mm-hmm. and see what comes back. It's, it's a lot. It's just all it is, is just 
throwing stuff at a wall and seeing what sticks. Mm -hmm. And you take it to this, and you only know when you take it on stage. You can write the funniest thing mm -hmm. down on a notepad and then you take it on stage and everyone's like, mm -hmm. that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because I think maybe stereotypically uh, comedians can often be sort of loners or, you know, get in their own heads. And, you know, it's been well documented about the addiction and far too many that died too young yeah. kind of thing. It's prevalent in, in the, you know, comedian world. And I'm wondering, you know, how much of the high of getting people to laugh or how much of that, and, and this isn't necessarily, I don't know if it's true for you, but it, you know, and I'm making a generalization about comedians that there seems to be some sort of deep need to either be liked or validated or get the laugh. And so I'm wondering, like, how do you find that line between the beauty of making somebody laugh and like needing the laugh. You know what I mean? It's a, it seems like a, a fine line. Yeah. I can't, I can't speak forever. I can only speak for myself, mm -hmm. but it is a really interesting question. And I often find myself a lot of the time, being like, do I need this laugh? Why, why do I need this laugh? Mm -hmm. And I like, I think for a lot of comedians, I said, I could only speak for myself, but I think a lot of comedians, I like to think of myself, even though I said I was like a weird kid mm -hmm. growing up. I like to think of myself now as a very normal person mm -hmm. um, and just like just a random guy who happens to do stand-up comedy. Mm -hmm. um, but I think a lot of people are chasing, it's like what they need. Mm -hmm. they, they need it to keep going. I don't necessarily know if I need it. It's just, I want to know that I've written a good joke and that it works. Like you mm -hmm. just want, like laughter is proof of success. And it's why like when you tell a joke for the hundredth time and it works, you're kind of like, okay, that's good. Like I know, or at least that's how I feel. Like when mm -hmm. I tell one of my class, or not one of my classic jokes, but one of, one of the jokes that I do a lot mm -hmm. and it works, I'm like, yep, that's to be expected. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just the expectation. But when you tell that joke for the first time mm -hmm. and it works, that's the best feeling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like that's a way better feeling than getting on stage and killing in front of however many people. Because you know... Because that's the expectation mm -hmm. is that these jokes work, they should love. Mm -hmm. But that first time, that's, I think that's the most exciting thing for me mm. is when you try something new mm -hmm. and it works. And I think yeah. most comedians would probably agree with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with like loving to make people laugh and loving what you do. And it's really up to the individual to know. And, and that's not just about you know, comedy, that's in anything that we do, you know, people pleasing or needing to be validated, you know, money, awards, success, whatever it is, you know, there's, it's always a slippery slope. So, all right. So tell me what should we know about, you know, where you're at now? And, and, you know, you mentioned some of the things that you're thinking about doing or doing as far as producing comedy, um, you know, kind of give me the final where you're at, you know, today in, in Columbus with, with what you're up to. Yeah, the aim is just to keep on growing the uh, Columbus comedy scene to be part of it. There are other people doing great stuff in the comedy scene, but I like to think that what we're doing, I, I run the Don't Tell comedy shows, which pop up around town. We do. We started a year ago to this day, I think, with a small 40-person show at the Locks Bagel Shop. Mm -hmm. And we did like a show every couple of months. And then... I was kind of like, hey, let's escalate this. We've got the momentum. And so now we are throwing at least four shows 
every single weekend in different parts of town and like secret BYOB locations Mm -hmm. around town. You never know who's going to be on a show. We bring in headliners from New York who you've seen on TV Mm -hmm. um, every single weekend, as well as like the best regional and local talent. And everyone who's been, I like to think, has had a good time. Mm. And they're really special. We've done like a bunch. We've sold out every show since September, which I think is a good thing. And the aim is just to keep on growing that, put on bigger and bigger shows, bring in bigger and bigger comics, and kind of ideally make it a thing when, like we were talking about in terms of growing the culture, when people visit Columbus for a weekend and they're like, what should we do? One of the top things that shows up on Google, one of the top things that everyone says to their friends who are visiting, we should go to a Don't Tell Comedy show. Mm -hmm. Same way when people go to New York, they're like, you have to go to the comedy cellar Mm -hmm. or you have to go see a comedy show. Ideally, that's the aim for Columbus. Mm-hmm. It's great. It, you know, your bit about Columbus and just what you just said has me thinking about something that I've really experienced here in growing my own business. And I'm from Columbus for the most part. And so that makes it easier. But it's such an easy city to get shit done. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I hope that's been your experience. I'm curious about it. But you can really stand things up here. And people will rally around you in a way that I don't think happens everywhere. You know, there's, there is a demand and there's a hunger for it. And if you're doing something good, you can really build something fairly quickly with a lot of support here. Yeah, it's a pretty remarkable city in that way. It's mm-hmm. just everyone's supportive. Everyone is, I think everyone in Columbus is eager for things to do. Everyone in Columbus is eager for fellow for their fellow residents to succeed and prop them up. Mm -hmm. Just like you were saying, I think it's people, there's no, well, I'm sure there's lots of little, there's lots of small hate going around. But Mm -hmm. in general, it's a city where people want the city to succeed. And so we'll support people who succeed it through. And one of the main things is showing up. Yeah. And I think that's true for literally anything. Like, I think it's true. If you put on something good in Columbus, people will show up. Yeah. It's a really special city. Yeah. Good. Well, I'm glad that's been your experience and um, really happy to have a chance to spend some time with you and uh, hear what you're doing here and uh, hopefully have a chance to collaborate. I know we're talking about doing some stuff at Gravity and um, love to be supportive and you making Columbus a better place through comedy. And I don't know if you have any kind of final thoughts, anything you want to share. We'll make sure people know where to find you. But, you know, anything else you want to share as we wrap up? I just wanted to thank you for having me. And also, you know, again, someone who's doing way more to make Columbus a a better place, to make it exciting. And, you know, all the initiatives that you do and this podcast and everything with gravity, it's, it's amazing. And I know we chatted a little bit before on the phone. But yeah, it's inspiring. And I really appreciate you having me on and being one of the leaders in terms of making uh, Columbus happen and also just being a good person. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, I appreciate it. All right, Simon, thanks, that was fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak. 